From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. In November of 1975, Southern University students Leonard Brown and Denver Smith were killed by police in Baton Rouge amid protests at the university. No one was ever charged for this crime. Today, we speak with two graduate students currently investigating the cold case. But first... The Louisiana School for the Deaf is not up to standards. Not only is enrollment declining, but over the summer, Superintendent of Louisiana School for the Deaf and Visually Impaired, Ernest Garrett III, was dismissed. And more recently, the director and principal of LSD, Heather Lane, was fired as well, both for unclear reasons. Here to tell us more about the turmoil and turnover at LSD and what advocates are calling for is Jay Ish, Executive Director of Deaf Focus for the Louisiana Association of the Deaf. He was joined by interpreter Sylvie Sullivan. And just a note, you might hear me speaking a bit slowly, and that's because I'm also trying to keep up with Jay in his native language, American Sign Language. That's right, this conversation was conducted both in spoken English and ASL. To watch this conversation in ASL, which we highly recommend you do, you can go to our websites, WWNO and WRKF.org. So happy to be here with you today. Thanks for coming on. The Louisiana School for the Deaf is having a lot of problems arise. There's enrollment decrease and teachers are maybe not teaching ASL. Why? What's happening? Well, it's a mess. Frankly, there are a lot of reasons for the declining enrollment. One is that during the pandemic, a lot of families wanted the children to stay at home for health reasons, of course. And some of them decided decided not to send their children back to school afterwards. And also, I feel like some families are not satisfied with the oversight of the special school district, and they want to have stability for their children. The special school district has a very high rate of turnover, turnover, and they have a lack of expert in deaf education, which is why you need to have deaf expert, deaf education expert in place who know how to run the school for the deaf. And that's what the children really need. Now, information about teachers not teaching American Sign Language is not actually accurate. Almost all of the teachers at the School for the Deaf are proficient in American Sign Language. And they also go beyond just, quote unquote, teaching ASL. They are teaching the curriculum, everything in American Sign Language. Uh, The administration has chased some staff away from the school. And a lot of teachers and staff have resigned because they feel oppressed and they feel that it's a hostile working environment. Um, children are turned away because the school doesn't have enough staff to care for them. And open staff positions are not being filled with competent, qualified staff because uh, they're saying there's a low student enrollment, so it doesn't support the need for more teachers. So it looks like the school has a, created a lack, of, a lack of qualified staff, but they're turning away. They're using that to justify not filling positions because there's not enough students. It's as if um, the special school district is almost purposely starving the school, trying to close the school. Wow. Well, the previous principal, she took the school position and she raised it a little from F to D. She was fired. 
Now, the Louisiana Association of the Deaf organization, they want her to be reinstated? Why? I want to clarify something. Bringing the, the school grade from an F to a D is actually a huge accomplishment. Um, the school has been as an, at an F grade for over 10 years straight. And all over Louisiana, the pandemic, of course, has severely impacted attendance in all the school. Truancy rates were very high. And the School for the Deaf was also impacted by that as well. But what's hurting the school the most is the, the, test, uh, the state testing score. Do you know that the School for the Deaf gets a lot of students transferred from mainstream school and they are behind on language? And the state expects those teachers at the School for the Deaf to work miracles to get them on par from, with their peer um, immediately. A lot of people also don't consider that most students that we have from outside school coming to the Louisiana School for the Deaf far behind in language. And it takes a lot of hours of intervention and immersion to get the student to grow linguistically to where they're supposed to be. When they come to the school early enough, it takes a lot of hours. But when it comes to the school much later, the, the brain eventually uh, plateaus when it comes to language acquisition. So you can only imagine for yourself, if you didn't have any language right now, it would be really hard to learn a second language, right? Yeah, how would you be able to take a leap test with people evaluating the quality of your school based on how well you do on that test if you don't even have a language in the first place. And that's where the school has been failing for so many years because the school receives students who are already language deprived. And it's not fair to score the Louisiana School for the Deaf based on how they're performing against hearing school who have children whose family can communicate with them 100% of the time without issues. Most of our students at the School for the Deaf come from families who are hearing, meaning they don't know sign language oftentimes, and that's where the barrier comes in for mainstream students. Now, Dr. Lane has that in-depth background knowledge and knowing how to work with those students. She had so many barriers that she was facing, plus the pandemic and the test scores and the staff shortage, and she still was able to bring the school grade from an F to a D. And... I'm wondering if the school has no principal, how will it manage? What's next? So right now, SSD has put someone to oversee the instruction in interim. It's kind of messy, though, really, because that person is not qualified. Uh, they don't have an expertise, expertise in deaf education right now. Dr. Lane, at the time, wore several hats, and she did a lot for the school. And that's why it's so crucial that the special school district reinstates Dr. Lane, the principal, um, because she has been and will continue to be what the deaf community requests. You know, there's mainstream education. There's deaf education. Some people assume that mainstream's better, but it's important to have both options. Tell me why. Because educating deaf students is not just a matter of what is accessible. Just because someone something is accessible doesn't mean that the learning is appropriate or otherwise received by the student, right? It's important to have expertise in deaf education because those experts, they're able to tell us whether something is accessible and appropriate for any given student. 
the charge is on the special school district to support the Louisiana School for the Deaf and to provide that. And since they don't have the expertise, the expertise in deaf education themselves, it's important that they listen to the experts in deaf education so that they can provide that. The Louisiana School for the Deaf is meant to be the experts, but for so long, the special school district has been trying to mold LSD to fit the hearing norm. Uh, the schools for the deaf provide deaf children the opportunity to not be isolated, the opportunity to, for incidental learning through visual learning with use of ASL, and the opportunity to have a healthy social, to be a whole healthy social well-being, the opportunity to be friends with their peers, the opportunity to play sports, and the list goes on and on. And I, I'd like to add that I grew up going to a school for the deaf. And I would have never traded that experience for anything else in the world. If I may add, I want to mention that deaf advocacy, advocates like me and other people are often perceived as aggressive, but it's a common talking point of those who work to oppress culturally deaf people who use American Sign Language. The deaf community has been fighting this battle here just to be understood for over 200 years. And it's not new. It's really frustrating for us because the illiteracy continue to fall on deaf ears. Thank you. I'm wondering overall, what's your message about accessible but also appropriate deaf education? Mainstream schools cost the state more money. Believe it or not, deaf schools are cheaper because all the students are together in one place. And you put all the resources in that same location. When you have one student in a mainstream school, they are using interpreters from the community, each area to put in different schools. And that creates a shortage of sign language interpreters in the community. So now in our community, we're having issues with a terrible shortage of interpreters because mainstream school thinks that uh, interpreters are enough accessibility for those students. But in most situations, deaf students are still isolated in those settings. They don't have a language-rich environment. It's not a matter of being accessible only. It's more a matter of giving the child the opportunity to thrive in a language-rich environment. Thanks so much for joining us, Jay from Deaf Focus. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for letting me sign. <laughs> for sure, for sure. No problem. And it's good to see somebody else learning sign language too. That's great. And again, you can watch this conversation between me, interpreter Sylvie Sullivan, and Jay Ish communicating in American Sign Language on our websites, WWNO and WRKF.org. This is the first time our stations are bringing you a conversation in ASL, and we highly recommend checking it out. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber.
This Wednesday, November 16th, marks the 50th anniversary of the death of two Southern University students, Leonard Brown and Denver Smith, who were killed by police in Baton Rouge. This came at a time when the students were protesting inadequate conditions at their school, which implored then-Governor Edwards to send the National Guard to Southern's campus in full riot gear and with a tank. But despite the murders, no officer was ever charged with a crime. Drew Hawkins, a graduate student at LSU, and Brittany Dunn, a Southern University law student, have been investigating this case with the LSU Cold Case Project as part of a four-part narrative series. They join us now for more on what they've uncovered in their reporting. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Can you set the stage for us a bit more? It's 1972. Southern University is the largest HBCU in the country, yet it's controlled by the state legislature, which is only spending about half as much money on this institution as it did on colleges with predominantly white students. So tell us a little bit more about what the students at Southern were enduring. I'll say I'll start with that, Drew. So um, in 1972, it was the fall the psychology department is who speared these um, protests. Um, there was an issue with a particular professor, Charles Wardell. He was having a, a need for equipment in the psychology department to do different types of psychological research that the school was promising him, but um, they had never followed through on those promises. He had met with Netterville several times at a point when he realized that he would not get what is what was being promised to him, he decided to stop working with Southern University. So um, the students at that time took it as a forced firing, like like that he was forced to resign. So um, with Miss um, Charlene Sakari Hartnett, she got other departments in the university to join together to begin Students United. And with Students United, they began these protests to um, initiate change within the school. They began having meetings every day almost, um, and they also met with Netterville on several occasions. Um, When they realized that their their needs were not being met, they began to call for Netterville to resign. And at the same time, um, there were some tensions in Baton Rouge itself. In January of that year, there was a shooting between, there was an encounter, a conflict between Black Muslims who had come from out of town and local law enforcement where two sheriff's deputies were killed. That's in January of 1972. So there are some tensions already going into the end of the year. And during that summer, a group of students that Brittany just mentioned, the Students United, they had gone to a big conference in uh, Gary, Indiana, that had where they had, where had seen a lot of success and a lot of momentum in their movement. And so they came home and realized that they had this great energy and they had some uh, momentum behind them. So they took that to their own campuses and really made a push to improve the conditions. And this lack of funding resulted in poor and inadequate housing, low quality food, not the classes that students were looking for. So when did this movement really come to a head and cause the governor to get involved after a particular football game? This group of this group called uh, Students United, they were really, really good at really planning uh, actions. They knew how they could get attention to their cause. And the Southern football games were and still are a very big part of the community and a very big part of the culture. And they knew that if they were able to disrupt the football game, that would bring a lot of attention to their cause. So that is one of the big actions that started this week's 
of ongoing regular student protest activism. Um, the football game that they protested at was a week before these these shoot, shootings happened. Um, they got on the football field and basically stopped the football game from happening. They wanted the school to understand that they needed to take these demands seriously. And by continuing all these extracurricular activities, it was clear that they were not doing that. I mean, how can you justify paying for a football team when you're not even paying for enough beds for students? I know one of the stories walks us through the day of the shooting. So break that down a little bit more. What exactly happened? Absolutely. So the day of the shooting itself was the culmination of a series of events that resulted in the arrest of some student protest leaders on the morning of the 16th. So starting at 4 a.m., sheriff's deputies showed up at apartment complexes to arrest a couple of the student leaders. So they decided the best course of action for them would be to take their case to Dr. Netteville and plead with him and see he, if he would assist and help them get their friends out of jail. So more and more students kind of joined their cause and gathered outside of the administration building. So a security guard allowed a small group of them, the original group who had kind of started this whole thing, to meet with Dr. Netteville in his office. And so we've got four or five people in his office with him asking him to please go downtown and help get our friends out of jail. And Dr. Netteville said that he wouldn't be forced to make decisions and he wouldn't operate under duress were his words. But he had a meeting at the, the State Board of Education that morning. And he said that he would, after he was done with his meeting, he would go and see what he could do. He would go make some inquiries. So the students took that to believe. And some of them said that Dr. Netteville directly told them to wait here for his return. And as they did, more and more students joined them and there grew to a, a gathering of about 150 to 200 students. And then they turn around unbeknownst to them without any warning and they see hundreds of law enforcement officers, a collection of uh, sheriff's deputies from East Baton Rouge Parish and state police, including an armored vehicle. We are speaking with Drew Hawkins and Brittany Dunn, who are working on the LSU Cold Case Project. Of course, in the end, that event resulted in the death of two students, Leonard Brown and Denver Smith. I feel like so often in these cold case stories, the identities of the victims can be lost or blurred over. So what do we know about the two of them and their lives? One thing that I definitely want to come out from this is that Leonard Brown had a three-month-old daughter. Leonard had a girlfriend at the time. This man saw his whole life ahead of him. I recall looking at his high school yearbook, and he mentioned that he could not wait to grow old and be a grandfather. Obviously, that was taken away from him. Um, Mr. Denver Smith, he was very protective of his sister. Um, he didn't want his sister to be a part of these protests, so he would often tell her to, to watch out for what she was doing. So um, my point that I'm making here is both of these men were not technically involved and they're from the point of view of their families they were not involved in these protests mr leonard brown had actually went home for two weeks prior to the november 16th incident because he did not want to be involved and at that time he took out a lot of time with his daughter again with denver smith the morning of this shooting when he realized the national guards were um headed on campus he actually got off the bus to go over there to check on his sister 
And both of these men were innocent in all of this, and they lost their lives as a result of these protests. Just like Brittany said, both of these guys were really uninvolved in the protests, and they were especially not supportive of class boycotts, which were a big part of the movement, because education was so critically important to them. Uh, Denver Smith was a computer science major in 1972. It was this cutting-edge technology. And Leonard Brown, just like Brittany said, had dreams of returning back home and starting and running his own farm and marrying his girlfriend. So they very much were very forward-thinking and very much thinking of their career. And education was critical to them. And the idea of skipping classes for that just wasn't something they supported. In your final story in this four-part series, you look at the impact of this shooting on the victims' families and the Black community in Louisiana as a whole over the last 50 years. So what have you found? How does this story continue to shape the community? I recently um, spoke with Ms. Shonda Wallace, who is the daughter of Leonard Brown. One thing that this lady continues to tell me is that the theory of not missing what you never had is completely not true. This lady um, was a three-month-old child when her dad was killed. And she literally lives with this every single day. The impact that I believe that this has had on the community is that the fact that this story is not known, it's allowing these type of events to continue. The 1972 shooting on Southern's campus was the first time in history that Black men were caught being killed on camera. Just like these efforts for Breonna Taylor that we have going on with these movements to keep these to keep these people's name alive, that's what we want to come from this four-part story. Lena Brown and Denver Smith, um, yes, Southern University has memorialized their names by putting out a putting a marker out and also by naming the union after them. But we found through our research, um, I did a poll at the union where most students did not know exactly what happened on November 16, 1972. So the fact that these stories are not being told is allowing history to repeat itself. Um, and we also need to get the truth out about these stories so that the community could feel comfortable with exercising their First Amendment right to protest you know, just to reiterate, because local media was out there that day, this shooting is the first instance of unarmed black men shot and killed on camera by police. So the connections to this story carry directly to today through George Floyd. 50 years is not that long. Most people know about Kent State and some people know about Jackson State. But many people and most people, I would say, don't know about what happened at Southern University in 1972, including people from the Baton Rouge area and many people even at Southern University, as Brittany just mentioned. And this is an important story that the effects of which carry through to today, and more people should know about this. And that's our big motivation behind doing this project in the first place. This has been Drew Hawkins, a graduate student at LSU, and Brittany Dunn, a Southern University law student, who've been investigating the shooting of Leonard Brown and Denver Smith as part of a four-part narrative series with the LSU Cold Case Project. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. There will be a commemorative event at the state capitol on the evening of November 16th this Wednesday to honor the lives of Leonard Brown and Denver Smith. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. 
Thanks to our guests, Executive Director of Deaf Focus for the Louisiana Association of the Deaf, Jay Ish, ASL interpreter, Sylvie Sullivan, LSU graduate student, Drew Hawkins, and Southern University law student, Brittany Dunn. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Purcell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Historic New Orleans Collection.